summum bonum, if you don't mind, the highest good in the moral universe is that men might know God for who he is and appropriately honor and glorify him. This is a God-centered universe. In order for us to honor him, we have to know him. And at that point, we are twice crippled. Because on the one hand, we're a finite people, and he's an infinite God, and we could not search him out. But on the other hand, we're a fallen people. And therefore, not only would we, could we not, but we would not. We were alienated to him. We were offended and scandalized at his claims upon our life. And therefore, God has carefully and patiently and graciously taken the initiative. And he has made himself known. We call that revelation, God making himself known to mankind. And the process of revelation is is recorded in the scriptures. And along the way, as you trace the process of God's revelation of himself, there are a number of high points or way markers, if you don't mind, that I'd like us to focus on very, very briefly. And I'm thinking specifically of those times where God makes covenant with men. Uh, There are times where God cuts covenant with mankind. And we're going to trace those because one of those biblical covenants is uniquely ours. And it has a great deal to do with what we're going to gather, what we have gathered to do to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So in order to, to walk you through that, I'm going to set before you very quickly, hold on, six propositions. Number one, the first proposition is simply this, that in the Old Testament there are, in fact, four covenants that God makes with mankind. Can you trace them? There is the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9, about 2,300 years before Christ, immediately after the flood, as as that family emerges from the ark and discovers a, a world very different than what they had known, God institutes certain procedures, and he does that in a form of a covenant. If you go to Genesis 9 and verse 11, it says specifically, this covenant I have made uh, with mankind. And so it's a covenant. Now, the next covenant in the scriptures, and by the way, time out, I should have said this, I'm not talking about the theologically derived covenants, which some have used to build their theology and so on. I'm talking about the covenants of scripture, when the scripture says explicitly that God has made covenant with mankind. So you have the Noahic covenant, and then secondly, you have in Genesis 12, 2100 or 20, uh, about 2100 years before Christ, you have the Abrahamic covenant. God calls to himself this man Abraham out of the earth of Chaldees, and he makes a covenant. You have it in Genesis 12, and again in Genesis 15, and again in Genesis 17. And uh, by the terms of that covenant, God promises that he will uh, make of that man a great family, and then a great clan, and then a great nation. And he will give that nation a land, and that he will make them a blessing to all the world. So you have the Abrahamic covenant. By the way, time out real quickly. One of the expressions of that covenant is in Genesis 15, where God, by reason of Adam's staggering faith, actually condescends to cut a covenant. The Hebrew word berith, or the Hebrew word for covenant is berith, and it means a cutting. And it's because in that culture, um, and this is not a primitive back, these, are so, these people are so remarkably more intelligent than we are today, forgive me. But the fact is, they they did have ways of establishing legal protocols, and they worked very, very nicely. And one of the things they did is when they made a contract, when two individuals made a contract, you would take an animal, and you'd cut it in half, and you'd lay the pieces over against each other. And now, in the presence of witnesses, you would walk the two parties through the pieces, and as you did so, you would 
articulate, you would recite the terms of the covenant. The reason for that protocol was that you were, you were giving the other person the right. What you're saying is, if I fail in my obligation to this covenant, you do to me what we did to the animal. That's why it's a blood covenant. Now God, in Genesis 15, does that. He causes Abraham to take those animals and lay them one against the other, cut them in half. And now God alone walks through the covenant. He is cutting a covenant. It couldn't be more explicit, more dramatic, more gracious. So you have the Abrahamic covenant. The third covenant is the Mosaic covenant. 1446 B.C., Israel has been rescued from Egypt. They've been brought to the foot of Mount Sinai. The glory cloud is hovering at the top of the mountain. And God calls Israel and makes them a covenant. It's recorded in Exodus 19 to 24. In Exodus 19, he offers them the covenant by which he would be their God and they would be his people. He was going to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then in Exodus 24, the animal is slain. The blood is sprinkled, first of all, upon the covenant document. And then on the people, God has cut a covenant. We call that the law, the Mosaic covenant, sometimes the Sinaitic covenant. Now, there is a fourth one. It doesn't speak exactly to what we're talking about, and that is the Davidic covenant. Hugely important, hugely blessed. If we were going to engage in a uh, which one of these is not like the others exercise, this would be the one. It's made with an individual, but nonetheless it ramifies to us because it solidifies the house of David as the house through which Messiah would come. So you have these four covenants. So proposition number one, four covenants. Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic. Now, a second proposition real quickly, and that is one of those covenants, and only one, was designed to wax old and pass away. You know which one? One of those covenants was deliberately temporary. It is the Mosaic Covenant, the law. The law, with all of its sacrifices and so on, was put in place deliberately uh, to be anticipatory, preparatory. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came what? To fulfill the law. And all the law, the law, the Mosaic law with all of its... And you know what, folks, I've got time for this. But I know that in the New Testament we are reminded that we are under grace and we're not under the law. It's all too easy for Christians to develop a certain cynicism or contempt for the law. The law was a marvelous, wonderful expression of divine grace and goodness. But it was preparatory. It was anticipatory. And, 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 and the whole book of Hebrews is making the point that the law itself included elements which were designed to make the worshiper hungry for more. You came away longing for something even better, as grateful as you were. So, four covenants, one of them was designed to be temporary. Now, a third proposition. Toward the end of Old Testament history, toward the end of that era before Jesus came, God, through the prophets, began to speak very, very specifically of a new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, God began to speak of a coming covenant which would be new. It was a new covenant. And he says, it'll not be like the covenant which I made with Israel at Mount Sinai. This is a new covenant, a blessed new covenant. Ezekiel develops this same thought in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And he refers to this covenant as a covenant of shalom, peace. Such a huge word in the Old Testament to have peace with God. This was a blessed covenant to be anticipated. Four covenants. One of them was designed to wax old, 
By the way, you have 39 books in your Bible called the Old Testament. Another word for testament is covenant. That's where that comes from. It's the Old Covenant literature. You have 27 books, which you call the New Testament, the New Covenant. That's God's manual as to how you're to live under the New Covenant. We need to learn to think of ourselves so carefully and consciously and biblically as living under a new covenant. Four covenants, one of them is explicitly said to be in the Bible to have been designed to wax old toward the end of the Old Testament, of the old, uh, that era. God begins to speak of a new covenant. Fourth proposition is this. Messiah Jesus came specifically to provide the new covenant. That's what his ministry was about. That's why when John was anticipating him, John the baptizer, he said, there is one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's Ezekiel 36. That's the new covenant. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in John 16 in the upper room, that it is expedient for you that I go away, that I go to the cross. Because if I don't do that, if I don't go away by means of the cross, the comforter will not, cannot come to you. But if I depart... If I go to the cross, he will come to you. As Jesus was about to ascend, he, 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 he said to his disciples, go into the city of Jerusalem, wait, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days hence, that happened on Pentecost. Folks, that's the inauguration of this new covenant relationship. That's what's going on there. You are being initiated. The, 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 the new covenant has been provided. How was it? How was it? Now remember this. That Jesus did, in fact, what was necessary for Jesus to come and to be the, the giver of this new covenant relationship? Number one, he had to become, he had to take upon himself genuine human nature. He could not be our redeemer unless he became our kinsman. So he took upon himself real a body and a nature that was as real as any human being who ever lived. And number two, he had to die. He had to shed his blood. There had to be a sacrifice. All right, four covenants. One of them was designed to wax old. Toward the end of the Old Testament era, God begins to talk about a new covenant. Jesus comes, and all over the pages of the Gospels, it is clear that he has come to provide this new covenant. All right, a fifth proposition, and that is this, that the new covenant is marvelously distinct at two points. And this is where I want to park for just a moment. If you go to the Scriptures... And by the way, books are written, uh, dissertations are written to explore this, 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 this biblical question. How is the standing and the privilege of the new covenant believer to be distinguished from that of the old covenant? We have a whole book called Hebrews. What's the theme? What's the key word of the book of Hebrews? Remember? Better. We have a better covenant based on a better sacrifice offered up by a better high priest in a better tabernacle. Clearly, our standing under the new covenant is better. How? Well, biblically, there are two remarkable blessings. And you know these, but you don't often think of them against the backdrop of the old covenant. And I think it's so important to see where God has brought you. Those two blessings of the new covenant are these. Number one, sins once and for all forgiven. Now, you've never known anything else. This is the gospel. Jesus died once for all. But folks, there were generations and centuries of believers who loved Yahweh and honored Yahweh and their sins were forgiven. I am persuaded that the John 3.16 of the Old Testament was Leviticus 17.11. Leviticus 17.11 says this, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your soul. Now watch this, the blood shall make an atonement for your soul. That's a promise. 
And you could take that sacrifice, you could willingly and faithfully participate in what was going on in the Day of Atonement with the confidence that you had a promise. And that was that God had offered up animal sacrifices, which when done in faith would, in fact, accomplish atonement. Praise God. But you know what? You never, ever offered your last sacrifice. It's often been pointed out that with all of the provision made for the tabernacle temple, with all of the furniture, with all the accruements, with all the, 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 the provision, there's one item of furniture which is startlingly absent, and that is a chair, a bench. There was to be nothing of the sort in the tabernacle, because if there were, a priest might sit down. And if he sat down in the midst of his duties, you might get the impression his work was done. His work was never done. The blood of bulls and goats could not finally take away sin, Hebrews 10. And there, but, but, Jesus offered himself up. And then what did he do? He sat down. It's once for all. Now, folks, this blessedness that you and I take so much for granted, that we have a gospel which teaches us that sin has once and for all been taken care of by the finished work, by the death of this one who was at once God and man and could offer himself up in a way that would satisfy the offended holiness of a thrice holy God and therefore could atone for our sins once and for all, as precious and as real as that is, measured against the reality that for thousands of years people couldn't imagine such a thing. That's a new covenant blessing, but there's another blessing real quickly. I've got to be done. And that is this. The new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. You have been baptized. You have been the Spirit of. You have been immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now listen, I got to say this. There's a lot of discussion as to what this means. I believe that it can be reduced to one word. That is, the relationship of the Old Testament saint to the God whom he loved dearly, and the relationship that you and I have to that same God. The distinction can be reduced to one word, and that one word is intimacy. You and I enjoy an intimacy with the Father that the Old Testament saint, I'm convinced, would have been scandalized to hear you talk about. I searched the Old Testament. I cannot find a place where any Old Testament saint ever refers to God as his Father. You know him not only as Father, you know him as Abba, as Papa. Now listen, an Old Testament saint would be horrified to hear you use that terminology. But we have this spirit of adoption which has been sent forth in our hearts, Galatians 4 and Romans 8, which causes us to cry out, you know what, Abba, in the Old Testament, you had this temple system, this tabernacle temple. It was a blessed thing because God had taken up his residence in the midst of his people and he invited you to approach him. That's what you were doing. And it was a tremendously blessed thing. But I'll tell you something, you only came so close. You came to the outer court. You'd never deign to go into the building itself to the holy place. And never in a million years would you deign to, 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 to think that you could go into the holy of holies where the high priest went after seven days of careful preparation once a year. Folks, the veil has been rent. We have been not only invited, we've been commanded to come boldly before the throne of grace. And when you think the throne of grace, don't you ever think of some big western throne with purple drapes and so on. That's the holy of holies. You have been invited, yea, commanded, to come boldly before God. There is an intimacy, a oneness, a relationship, a Abba principle that is ours by reason of this new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, four covenants. One of them was designed to wax old. Toward the end of the Old Testament, God began to talk about a new covenant. Jesus came to fulfill that new covenant. You have been made happy 
unanticipated beneficial. That new covenant is going to be made with Israel someday. But the blessings are yours because of the finished work of Christ even in this day. Learn to wallow in the new covenant. Learn to just celebrate this remarkable blessedness which is yours and do so against the the goodness of God under the old covenant. Now a sixth proposition, and that is this. That God gave us a sign to remind us of the new covenant. It's curious, to the, to, the, to, the, to the Noahic covenant, he gave the rainbow. You know that. Read it in Genesis 9. God says, I'll put the rainbow in the sky, and when I see, this is God talking, I will be reminded. It's like God tied a big string around his cosmic finger and said, every time I see that rainbow, I'm going to be reminded of this covenant. And so and with Abraham, it was the circumcision. It was circumcision with, uh, with, with the Mosaic covenant. People don't realize this. Exodus 31, it was Sabbath. But there was that which was built into your life. So on occasion, just in the course of life, you'd be drawn up short because God knows we have the capacity to remember uh, to, to forget what's the seal of the new covenant what has God given us to be consciously reminded of our new covenant standing it's this when you take Luke 22 19 and 20 this is the new covenant in my blood as long as you take it do so in remembrance folks Jesus took upon himself a real body And he shed his blood in order that he might provide for you a new covenant. We're going to do that now as we participate in the Lord's Supper. I would just compel you, number one, realize very consciously what you're doing is celebrating the new covenant. And it's by reason of that new covenant that you can with confidence testify your sins are once and for all forgiven and you can enjoy the kind of intimate relationship with God that the Old Testament saint never could have imagined. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for that stirring teaching on the biblical covenants and more importantly the blessing of the new covenant which you and I can enjoy and take part in today in this memorial. Let me just take a few moments to consider the importance of what we're about to do. And it's given to the church by the Lord himself. All four Gospels record the Passover evening in which Jesus and the disciples took the Passover meal together. They celebrated this age-old traditional Jewish Passover meal in the upper room. It was during that supper that Jesus transformed the Passover meal, which they knew so well, into the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table of the New Covenant. And in so doing, he created a memorial to be observed by his church down through the ages until he comes, a time of remembrance. So we, the church, would never forget our former bondage and slavery to sin and the price that he paid to set us free. In his body on the cross, he suffered and he bled on our behalf. And he gave his lifeblood to purchase our salvation. In Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he gives a warning to those Christians there to not approach this memorial in a manner that would not be pleasing to the Lord. Let me read you what he said to them. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let me pause there just for one second. When he says that you could be guilty of an unworthy approach to this table, what does he mean by that? Well, for some, it could be just a ritual. It could be ceremonial. They could do it by rote. 
they've partaken before, they can do this again. Rather than taking this opportunity to be reminded of the enormous sacrifice for my sin, we could, in fact, take lightly the sin that so entangles us right now in our own life. We could wrongly believe that these elements partake grace to cleanse from sin. In fact, they represent the sacrifice that cleansed us from our sin. And then finally, we could come in an unworthy manner if we harbor bitterness and any ill feelings towards any other brother. Let me continue on. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, that's chastisement, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That means they've passed away. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. These instructions are for believers. This table, these elements, are for those who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as disciples of Christ, we come now to take a spiritual inventory, an examination of my life. This is a time to confess sin. It's a time to make right what has been wrong in my life and to go before the Lord who paid for my sin with the purchase of his blood. Would you take time in the moments ahead to reflect on your own life, to do that examination and that spiritual inventory? Father, we were reminded by Doug that we can come to you not only as Father, but Abba as Papa, the dear one that we can run to. And Lord, you are not only our shield, our rock, you are our Savior. You have provided for us a plan of salvation, a gift by your grace, by your mercy, a complete forgiveness of sins. And we honor today the fact that Jesus, who took on flesh as a man and came, he came with one purpose in mind, and that is to redeem himself a people. So we want to thank you that this salvation work which Doug spoke of is a finished work, that we can add nothing to it, not our works, not our merit. There is nothing I can add to this salvation. It is done wholly and completely by you. Help us in this time to honor you with our thoughts, our hearts, and even our confessions. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.